at the end of chapter 3, let's just read again. All I want to do with chapter 3 is talk a little bit about baptism. As I said last week, uh, at verse 18, I want to start there because chapter 4 starts uh, with verse 18 in mind. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So you can see 3.18 is continued in 4, and there's a sense in which 19, uh, 19 through 22 or at least 21, uh, are a bit of a parenthesis between the two thoughts of Christ suffering in the flesh, that he states it in 18, and then he begins it in chapter 4. Uh, so verse uh, 19, being put, after being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, and of course the controversial passage in which he, in which he went and proclaimed the to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All I, all I, all I want to do is talk a little bit about a baptism, and I'm going to use a pedo baptism. I'm going to use R.C. Sproul's uh, section out of a piece of his sermon to talk a little bit about baptism, and hopefully we'll, we'll gain something from what he says. Uh, he starts off by talking about the Catholics. Of course, the Catholics believe that baptism works regeneration. Where re people are regenerated when they submit to baptism. Their souls receive uh, uh, new life. Justification uh, happens. And of course, that's not what we as any Protestants believe. Uh, and particularly... Uh, he says, Reformed Protestants, we reject all this notion, uh, arguing that people baptized may not be saved. Uh, it doesn't necessarily indicate salvation. We know that, right? Just because we're baptized. Um, that was the mistake, he says, Israel made with the sign of circumcision. He says, though they were they thought because they were circumcised, they had the sign of God's promise of salvation. And that they had the God. The, though they thought because they were circumcised and had the sign of God's promise of salvation, their thinking was that they had the reality towards which the sign of circumcision pointed. The sign of circumcision pointed to of course, the spiritual reality of the circumcision of the heart. 
You can go to Deuteronomy and find that picture. So it, it's not the physical circumcision, but they thought because they had the physical sign that they had the reality of being God's people. They were not. Uh, Sproul then continues, he says, we believe, and so we need to know who he means by we, but we'll find out who he means. He says, we believe that baptism is the sign of God's promise for all who believe. But that promise is not realized unless we embrace Christ by faith. We okay so far as Baptists? We believe baptism is a sign of God's promise for all who believe. But the promise is not realized unless we embrace Christ by faith. Now they're going to reverse the process, but we're still okay with them as far as I'm concerned. When we do, when we embrace Christ by faith, all things that baptism symbolizes become ours. When we um, embrace Christ, when we come to Christ, everything that baptism symbolizes becomes ours. Then he lists what baptism symbolizes. Symbolizes our participation in Christ's burial and resurrection. Think about our baptism that is a sign, a picture, if you will, of our conversion, of our salvation. So it symbolizes our participation in Christ's burial and resurrection. That doesn't happen until we believe in Christ. Our cleansing from sin, right? Our regeneration, but it doesn't convey our regeneration. It pictures our, symbolizes our regeneration, our new life, raised to new life. Um, our sanctification, our being anointed by the Spirit where we have been set apart by God. The picture of being set apart by God at salvation. Not our ongoing, but our in our conversion, we are set apart. We're sanctified in one sense in the past. Uh, and so our baptism uh, symbolizes this new life and this, this new purpose for living, this new sanctification. And our adoption into the family of God, all of which he says occur the second we believe. Participation in the burial and resurrection of Christ, cleansing from sin, regeneration has, has uh, happened that caused us to believe. Sanctification, we've been set apart by God and we've been adopted into the family of God. Here's what he keeps going. One reason the Baptist community has emerged in history as one of the strongest groups is the Baptists rejected the idea of baptis baptismal regeneration and believe that the efficacy of baptism is so dependent upon faith, it ought never to be administered to anyone who has not made a profession of faith. So he rightly depicts us there, right? He says what we are, but he does say that we believe so strongly that baptism shouldn't be administered except to believers. So it doesn't come until there's a profession of faith. Inasmuch, here's... 
he continues, inasmuch as infants are not capable of doing so, baptism should be reserved for only those who profess faith in Christ. Now, he's still talking about Baptists. He's not talking about himself, right? But he's talking about Baptists. And so, I mean, that's a fair evaluation of us. All of this, he says, is involved in the implication of 1 Peter 3. He says, in a word... Without, well, uh, we could read it, but I'm just going to close there. The last of 21 through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of this happens through the means of the resurrection of Christ. Of course, the death and the resurrection. He says, in a word, without Christ, his death, resurrection, the imputation of his righteousness to us, and the imputation of our guilt to him, baptism would be utterly worthless. Without Christ, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness counted to us, and our guilt counted to him, baptism is useless. Without that. Right? Right? just a dunking in the water. Okay. He says, if I thought baptism put people in a state of justification, he says, I'd stand on the corner with a fire hose and spray everybody I could see. You know, I mean, that's, that's sproll. That's, that's vintage sproll. The water that saved Noah and his family saved them because they put their trust in the promises of God. The same water was the occasion of the utter destruction of those who did not place their faith and trust in God. It says, I don't want to demean the importance of baptism because it is a sacrament or an ordinance, as we would call it. It does communicate the promises of God to all who believe. We do not despise his word, which makes his promises verbally, nor do we despise the ordinance or the sacrament that confirms it non-verbally. These are the authentic signs and seals of God's promises. Um, that's the first time, the first place that I can't go along with him, that baptism is a sign and the seal. He would say it's the sign and the seal of the new covenant. Um, as circumcision was the sign and the seal of the old. What's the sign of the new covenant? If we talk that way. The baptism. Baptism is the sign, right? But the seal is not our baptism. The only language that we have that is the seal is the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. And it's where we, we, go, we go with the Reformed Presbyterians so far, and then there's a place where we depart even in our covenant theology, what we believe as covenantal Christians, where there's a sense in which we would consider the Presbyterians 
to not have enough difference in the old and the new covenant. They just transfer almost the old to the new. Circumcision and baptism are interchangeable, not interchangeable, but essentially the same thing, depending on which covenant we're talking about. Uh, On the other hand, dispensationalists make too broad of a difference between the old and the new covenant. Um, To where, in a sense, the old covenant, we have very little to do with the old covenant. Many would say we have nothing to do with it, but very little to do with the Old Testament, the old covenant. And as Baptists, we think we take the middle road, and that kind of is the uh, mediating position that there is more difference than the Presbyterians, but not as much as the dispensationalists when we study covenant theology. And we see as we walk through baptism, one of the major differences, if you will, of, of our understanding of church practice, of ecclesiology, we go right along with the Presbyterians and then we diverge at that one little point. And there's other, other differences, Corey, is there anything else, Sir Allen, that we might say along those lines? I know you're not prepared, but I mean, you know, I hate to go ahead. No, that's what I would just say. Baptism is an initiatory sign, so there are similarities with circumcision, but we see it ends there. I mean, we have Lord's Supper as that ongoing sign of the new covenant. Because there's similarities doesn't mean we go back to the old and take from the old and bring those over into the new. And we see we see shadow, types and shadows, not we take this from the old and now apply it to the new. We, 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 I mean, even the Presbyterian hermeneutic, the Pado Baptist hermeneutic, doesn't do that except in certain areas like circumcision. Uh, they wouldn't do that. They usually go to the new and interpret the, the old life of the new as we would. But here they're bringing something over. Um, and it really is a violation of the regulative principle um, because, I mean, regular principle, what does the Scripture prescribe? And uh, it prescribes, I mean, even here in this passage, um, baptism by faith, that appeal. The, uh, I don't know if you're going to hit on that or not. No, I'm, I'm done with uh, uh, three. I'm tired of three. But, but go ahead. T- keep going. I mean, it says here, you know, baptism, it's not, it doesn't save you by just removing dirt by getting wet, but as an appeal, as a profession to God, for a good conscience. I mean, the Presbyterians that we read, they speak about baptism so much better than we do. But then whenever we find out who's being baptized, to me the picture falls way short uh, whenever you think about an infant being sprinkled. Yeah. So, the, uh, I mean, one, we don't see any examples, but two, um, I mean, just here, I mean, it's baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. How can an infant do that? Mm-hmm. Sprinkle babies as uh, a relation with the circumcision. Why do they sprinkle female babies? Should they just be sprinkling the male children? I will refer you to the uh, baptism debates that are on Ligonier's website, and he gets. The, I don't know if the Q and A sessions are there. The session was out, that June and I were in was in in Florida when he uh, argued with. 
uh, when, he, when they debated. And, and again, Sproul invites the Baptist to his conference and allows this debate where the Baptist gives his view of baptism, Sproul gave his view, and then they had a Q&A and a kibbit. So, I mean, you have to... You have to appreciate Sproul for that. I mean, you have to. And, and so when that question was asked of him, he said the new covenant's broader in its mercy. Why would you baptize little girls when you didn't circumcise the little girls? Because it's broader, it's wider in its mercy. So... Yeah, and that doesn't bother him a bit. We laugh, we smile at that, but that doesn't bother him a bit because his theology drives it so much. His covenant theology drives it so much. Corey, were you? Yes, James. I'm not sure how this plays in. You know, we look at baptism as being. How about a circumcised heart? Should we ever bring that up? Or is. Like you got Old, Old Testament circumcision, which is physical, but then we have a circumcised heart. Yeah. yeah. What? Sure what's that? I'm not sure how to ask this question, but you know, should we bring that up along with baptism, or that it's a sign, or it's? Well, the circumcised heart is not the sign. That's a reality. I think he's trying to get at the point that they use the circumcision sign and then transfer it to be the baptism sign. They kind of, because of the circumcision being a sign in the Old Covenant, we have to have a sign like that. That's what it's been explained to me. Okay. So that's why we baptize the babies. And I think that's why what he's asking, so can we bring up that into that discussion? You can, but they're not saying that this baptism circumcises the heart. They're still saying you have to have faith to be truly a part of the covenant. You become part of the covenant family of that congregation in a sense. In some way, the child becomes part of the covenant family. Uh, yes, that was one of the big problems I had with and, and let me just, I hope you'll let me say this. Uh, he, had, he went to a Presbyterian church, before, Warner had, did because of their doctrine of salvation, right? Until he found us. That's where I was introduced to reform. Okay, that's where you were introduced. Okay, go ahead. But, that was your problem. Yes, yes. And, uh, and the, during the Reformation, we tried, the Reformers tried to split, except for Luther, tried to split as far from the Catholic Church as they could on any um, visible appearance approaching Catholicism. And that was always my, also another one of my arguments. If it, if it has nothing to do with regeneration, and salvation, then why would you confuse people by doing something that the Catholic Church does that is uh, soteriological, that does pertain to salvation? So if, if for no other reason, I would not go through the process because it confuses people 
who aren't sound in their theology is to thinking it's the same as what the Catholics are doing. Yeah, not many. I mean, the Baptists end up not baptizing infants, but Calvin didn't, Zwingli didn't. Uh, most most of the magisterial reformers that we're talking about. Split from the Catholic yeah. Church. He wanted to reform. He wanted to reform the church. But the ones after that, they they yeah. stayed away from all of those things. And and before there was a Roman Church. Shortly after Bible times, of course, everybody was, almost everybody was baptizing infants. Now, the Baptists, I know we go back to Peter and, and, and uh, we go back farther than everybody, I mean, John the Baptist and all of that. Corey, you were going to, Aaron, you had your. Uh, well, everybody's already said that it's a circumcision of the heart issue. Uh-huh. But the Jews circumcised because of a sign of who they were. Yes. They were a people. That's, yes. That's kind of the idea I've always taken away from how Presbyterians approach it. The baptism, because of the way they, they, drew, they viewed the children as part of the covenant church. Like you've already said, they don't believe they're, they're baptizing these babies into salvation. Yes. But that's their view of the church family, per se. They'll still say... You need to, you're saved by faith, and that needs to be realized at a certain point. And if you're an adult coming from outside the Presbyterian church, and you haven't been baptized, they'll baptize you. Yes. Yes. It's a different one. Corey, you aren't done. I was just going to say, circumcision, I mean, always pointed to circumcision of the heart. I mean, that's the, uh, this is, it's a shadow of heart circumcision. Uh, going to James' comment there, and then the, uh, I think Aaron brings a good point, I'm sure bring both of these together, where um, we, we have to remember that Presbyterians, we, we, we agree with them a lot, that's why our bookshelves are mostly Presbyterian. Yeah. A lot of the commentaries I read are Presbyterian, because Baptists have not been very good theologically, but uh, thinking about what Warren was saying there, where we see this as Baptists, I mean, think about the Reformation. I mean, the Reformers did, they did reform baptism in a sense. I mean, they got away from certain Roman Catholic ideas, but as the Bible becomes more accessible to man, I mean, think about one of the next steps is the 17th century, and baptism begins to become a topic of conversation, where before it was connected to justification by faith, now all of a sudden it's connected to ecclesiology, and I believe that this is Baptist contribution to the church, and... Uh, you know, what uh, the thing that was said then and the thing that we say now um, is finish the Reformation. I mean, not that we would say we finished it, but in this regard, I mean, we see this as being a, a, a next step in this. And doesn't mean that we would say Presbyterians are out by any means. Um, we believe they have the wrong understanding of baptism. That's why we don't gather in the church um, together. But, yeah, that, there's, there's your question. Why, if our gospel is so alike... Why do we have Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches? Well, they sure have more money than we have, that's for sure. As a rule. I came home as fast as I could. You came home as fast as you could, yeah. One of the reasons is how we look at our children. Not, this is a generalization. All right, uh, this not, not everyone. This is a generalization. Typically, they don't evangel. They don't need to evangelize their children unless they prove themselves to be lost. We 
on the other hand, <laughs> know that they're lost. And they will know that their children are lost, but they are in the covenant now in one sense. But they don't let them have communion, most of them, as covenant children. Again, all of these things, we're, we're, just a second, Kim, hang on to what you're... I, I, I mean, we want to be careful at picking on them. <laughs> you know, we live in some glass houses, where houses with a lot of glass that we don't want to be throwing too many rocks. But that's part of the difference. It's, it's a good thing that though our gospel is the same, we cannot practice, we cannot live our ecclesiology out consistently together in unity. I don't think. So I think that's a good reason. I think it's a very horrible, bad reason that we have well over a thousand denominations of Baptists. There's too many Baptists taking their ball and going home and starting a new thing because of something. Well, and, and part of that's because of liberalism. And, yeah. Okay, so, uh, Kim. Just to make the point, my mom and I have discussed this quite a bit because a friend of hers is Presbyterian, and this lady has grown children, and she's of the mindset that her children are saved when clearly they are not. And it's the whole mindset of, well, they were sprinkled as a baby and the covenant mm-hmm. theology that they have. So it does, like you said, they... They see their children as saved, and indeed they're lost. I don't think that's typical of Presbyterians. Huh? Not typical of Presbyterians? I don't think that the thir- there's an assumption that they're saved without any evidence. You said something to that effect earlier. Well, some, some of them write about it. Not, not the majority, I'm sure. But some of them do write about it that, in that way. But... Uh, yeah, but do we not have baptized Baptist children that we look at the same way? Yeah, again, we don't want to throw too many rocks. Uh, and, and we want to... What's that? This is a plug for the second yeah. hour. <laughs> we, well, we want to do more evaluation of ourselves than we do them. But I just thought this was a good representation of how close we are. In fact, here's what he closed with that I thought was powerful for, it was impacted me. Okay, so he says, the power of the sacrament or the power of the ordinance lies in the integrity of God, not in the one who administers it or in the virtue of those who receive it, It lies in the power of God whose word is confirmed in this ordinance of redemption. So uh, the power is in the integrity of God, who God is, what Christ has done for us. And it's not in our virtue, even though we baptize believers who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. It's not in the one who administers it. The constitution of the church I came from said baptism had to be uh, uh, performed by a, uh, I can't even remember the adjective, by the right 
baptizer. <laughs> That's not what it said, but by, by a duly... No, it didn't even say ordained. It would have been different if it had said ordained. It just said somebody who was qualified to baptize. And so, but it lies in the power of God whose word is confirmed in the ordinance. Okay, let's, anybody else? Going once. <laughs> Done. First Peter chapter 4. I like this much better. It's much more Pauline. We'll see. We'll compare some of this to Paul uh, and uh, see what he's saying here. I'm going to go back to verse 22 first. Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Christ has uh, ascended. The angels, the authorities, and powers, and we know that's the spiritual beings in heavenly places, according to Paul in Ephesians. Uh, they have, have been subjected to him as he uh, uh, is our mediator, our intercessor, as he is at the right hand of the Father in his glorified situation. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We'll just, I don't know if that's the paragraph. My Bible doesn't have paragraphs. Is that the end of a paragraph? Okay, that's good. Okay, so we go back to 318. Um, for Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Since, verse 1 of 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he did suffer in the flesh, in a human body. Uh, he appeared like us. Corey preached that for us last week. Um, uh, in light of Jesus suffering unto death, in, uh, unto death, if you will, Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So we're, what, what we have here is um, a picture of the war. Uh, do you, do we, do I picture my daily life a war? Arm yourselves. I'll use a cultural word. Weaponize yourself. It's the word weapon turned into a verb. So what Peter says is weaponize yourself 
in the same way of thinking. And so what way of thinking is he talking about? Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, since Christ suffered in the flesh, weaponize yourself with the same way of thinking. Go to war in the same way. Arm yourself with the same with the mind of Christ. Uh, and again, we could go to Ephesians. In fact, we ought to go to Ephesians with our finger there. Turn to Ephesians 6. You know it well, probably. But we'll get some parallels here and some differences as Paul depicts the battle in a little bit different way than Peter depicts the battle, the spiritual battle that we are in. Um, Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That passage goes matches Peter's passage that these same spirits in heavenly places have been subjected to Jesus already. Right? We're fighting a war. They've been subjected to him. We'll come back to that. Verse 14. Oh, no, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, you see here, repetition. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making application, supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. So we see here that Paul depicts the war and the arm yourselves, if you will, with the... Uh, full armor of God. And he lists that full armor characteristics beginning at the head with uh, going down to the feet and then the belt of truth that has the sword in it and then with all prayer. So he speaks of it that way. Uh, In Romans 6, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons for righteousness or instruments of righteousness. Here's our, the weapons are to be our members. There's, our members are to be weapons of war fighting for righteousness 
rather than the old life that we were in. In Romans 13, 12, he says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So Paul is maybe, probably, chained to a Roman soldier, looking at his armor, possibly, and just going down the pieces of armor and then turning that into the weapons that we have the armor that we have to fight against the evil spirits as he spiritualizes each one, gives a kind of a spiritual or applicatory meaning to each part. Peter, on the other hand, is saying, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. So he's thinking of the battle in, uh, of thoughts. And Paul also thinks that way with the Corinthians where in 2 Corinthians 10, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that's more how Peter's looking at the war, taking every thought captive, destroying arguments that are contrary to the knowledge of God. And so back in 1 Peter 4, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It's, what again, what Corey alluded to, the mind of Christ. We take on the mind of Christ to fight this spiritual battle. That is our weapon, our minds... And our, in the power of the Spirit, living and thinking accordingly to the mind of Christ. Uh, warring against those same critters, those same evil powers that Paul alludes to. Powers that are already subjected, and yet the war goes on. Again, it's, it's that aspect of... Things have already taken place, but they've not yet completely been consummated. And so the battle has been won. They're subject to him, but the war continues uh, in our daily lives until the Lord Jesus does return. Yes? At this time, I know there's some news out there, but uh, just who survived risen Christ is now ascending to the throne in heaven. Has Satan been bound in the abyss? Is he like Napoleon on the island of Elvis or still throwing commands out there? Uh, it's not here. So he's, he's it, not bound then right now? It's not in First Peter 4. <laughs> yes, he's bound. Or Jesus couldn't do a miracle. That's what Jesus said. Unless, unless, unless the strong man is bound, uh, I can't do a miracle. So, don't let James distract you. <laughs> but that's a question. I understand, James. I understand. you. But, but that's, that's not here. They're subjected to him. That's all we know according to this. Yes, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And there's other views. There's varying views. Varying logical, uh, biblical views that 
men and women have. So, um, but they are subjected into how do we get the mind of Christ? How do we have the same way of thinking? Okay, by renewing your mind, which is how, what's the what's the the word of God renewing our mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world shape you, but be transformed from the inside out by the word of God. Um, some, may the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in us, live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Uh, to gain the mind of Christ, we have to immerse ourselves in the word of God. Where, 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 where are you going to learn about Christ besides the word of God? I mean, you can listen to teachers, that's good, but you've got to know the word of God to know if they're telling you the truth. And it'll be so much more um, fulfilling if you're not just taking what someone else has digested and pouring it out, if you'll go dig it out yourself. Although we need to be taught and we stand on the shoulders of grand teachers. We need to know who teaches and then we need to be able to test the spirits, to discern the teachings. But we have to know the word of God, to have the mind of Christ. The scriptures reveal him. Nowhere else to go uh, but there. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 6. Again, you know me. I'm going to go to Paul a lot. But but Peter does too. Peter mentions him anyway. And, and in this section right here, he's so much in line with Paul. 2 Corinthians 6. And I didn't need to do the whole passage, but I'm going to read the 10 verses. As he talks about arming ourselves in the flesh in the same way of thinking. Um, and Paul... Uh, had the mind of Christ. Verse 1, working together with him, and if we go to the end of chapter 5, the, the him is uh, Christ, or the righteousness of God is the immediate antecedent. Working together with him, so there's a, a bit of a picture of sanctification, right? Working together with God then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Here's Paul. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor 
and dishonor, through slander and praise. So you notice what his weapons are, that long list right there, is how the weapons of righteousness. Paul's talking about how it is that he is thinking and living through. Look at verse uh, 9, 8. We are treated as imposters, yet we're true. Let them call us what they will. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished. See how they're treating Paul and yet he maintains the mind of Christ. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. And as having nothing yet possessing everything. There's the mind of Christ. Those ten verses, Paul's telling you how it is that he is, how the mind of Christ is playing itself out in his life. We won't face what Paul faced. You can go, I think, to 11 where he's got another longer list of the afflictions of his life, and yet he never fails. He's, he's depressed, but he's not beaten down. He talks about uh, all of the all of the contrasts that he takes up this same way of thinking, and now uh, four verse one of chapter First Peter four. Yeah. Commend. What, what is he? What is the intent of we commend ourselves? It's the idea of commendation. This is his last letter to the Corinthians that we have. He has gone. The naysayers about Paul have come in and said he's nobody. And Paul is, he sent them a nasty letter. And now he is saying to them, I'm having to commend myself to you again. I spent a year and a half with you. You know the ministry. You know me. And I'm having to give you my credentials again. And he says, the only commendation I have is a changed life by the power. I came to you preaching Christ alone, and the changed life is how I commend myself to you by living. You know, it's it's not the dramatic. It's the everyday faithfulness that will impact the world. And that's what he's saying. Here's how I commend myself. They beat me. That's okay. It doesn't change my attitude. You know, I mean, all of these things they list, and yet he continues on faithful. Um, okay, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same, very same, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We got to go home. Um, here's what I'll say. That last phrase does not pertain to Christ. There's a parallel in the first two phrases. The third phrase cannot refer to Christ. Why? Huh? Yeah. Christ has not ceased from sin. 
because he never did. He had no sin. So we'll get to that. So it's about us. Those having suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you've equipped us for the battle. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word that we might understand how it is that we might uh, live above the circumstances that you put before us. With Paul as an example, with Peter as an example, but your word that is so clear. Father, we pray that as ambassadors representing our citizenship in heaven, our kingdom from which we, or to which we belong, Father, we thank you that you've equipped us again and that, and we ask that you help us to be faithful representatives in all that we do, in all that we say. In the power of the Spirit, we pray, and in the power of the Spirit, we ask you would help us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.